welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on February 19th, Lord's Day service. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, through the preaching of your word, make the lamps of our hope burn and shine your light on the darkness in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus is at the temple. It's Passover week. And during Passover week, all Jewish males are expected to appear in Jerusalem. So conservative estimates are that in Jerusalem, during Passover week, there are 180,000 people. So picture the scene. In the middle of the temple are the inner courts. Surrounding the inner courts are large courtyards surrounded by high walls and pillars. Jesus is most likely in one of the porticos surrounding the court of the Gentiles. And the courtyards are packed. It's like Times Square on New Year's Eve. And Jesus is teaching, and the people are surrounding him. They're pressing in on him. And then a confrontation erupts. A group of priests and elders engage him. These chief priests and scribes and elders are representatives of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the governing body that rule over the temple. And they do not like Jesus. They don't like all these things Jesus has been doing. They don't like the way Jesus disrupted the temple. They don't like the miraculous healings. They don't like the content of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. And they don't like the authority with which Jesus teaches. And so, verse 28, they ask him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Their question is a personal question about Jesus. Jesus, where do you come off healing people and teaching like you do? Jesus, where do you come off teaching about the kingdom of God with such authority? Where do you come off clearing out the temple like you did? Where's your authority? What are your credentials? See, the chief priest and the elders, they're in charge of the temple. And they're not used to people just coming in and behaving and teaching with such authority. The Sanhedrin hasn't given Jesus authority to do these things. They haven't given him the proper credential to operate in the temple like this. Where did he get his authority? Where did he get his credential? Well, Jesus said back to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question. 
Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So notice what happens. They ask Jesus, what's your authority to do these things? What's your credential? And Jesus links his authority, he links his credential to the baptism of John. Now everyone there in the crowd listening knows John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the subject of prophecy. He was born six months prior to Jesus. And so Jesus is asked about his authority. And he refers them to when he was baptized by John the Baptist. So Jesus self-consciously sees his baptism that gives him the authority, that gives him the credential necessary to operate in the temple. And this should cause us to reflect on Jesus' baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? Well, righteousness, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25, is obedience to the law. Listen to it, Deuteronomy 6, 25. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And so Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and righteousness is obedience to the law. And Christ's entire life is marked by careful obedience to the commandments of the Lord. For example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus is circumcised in obedience to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. In Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Jesus is presented in the temple, and that according to the law of Moses. In Luke chapter 2, verse 42, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to the Passover when he is 12 years old, in obedience to Exodus chapter 34, verse 23. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus observes the Jewish feast commanded in the law of Moses. And Jesus observed the Old Testament law at his baptism. Christ's baptism is his ceremonial ordination into the priesthood, where he is set apart as a priest. Now, there were three requirements to become a priest. First, you must be 30 years old, according to Numbers chapter 4. And this is why Luke chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that at his baptism, Jesus was 30 years old. The second requirement to become a priest is you must have a special calling from God. Just like Aaron had a special calling from God in Exodus chapter 28. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 4 through 10, it goes through theological specificity in telling us how Jesus was called to be a priest. So to be a priest, you must be 30 years old. You must have a special call from the Lord. And third, you must be sprinkled with water. And this according to Numbers chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. To become a priest, you must be sprinkled with water, and that by a priest. Well, John the Baptist is not just a prophet. John the Baptist is a priest. His father was a priest, and according to the Old Testament law, you inherited that office from your father. So Jesus is baptized by a priest. And at Jesus' baptism... He is publicly confirmed for all the people to see, for all the people to verify that he is now a priest of God. Now, Jesus is not a priest in the line of Aaron. Hebrews 
makes this plain to us. Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, yet he still goes through these Old Testament rites for the priesthood. Why? Well, again, to publicly establish his authority as a priest, to publicly establish, establish that he does have the right to teach the people, that he does have a right to go into the temple and do these things. And so Jesus is asked about his authority, he's asked about his credential, and he refers them to his baptism by John the Baptist at 30 years old, the age at which, at which a priest begins his ministry. In other words, Jesus self-consciously sees his baptism as the moment he is anointed as a priest. And so when Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple, like he did back in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, what is he doing? He's exercising his authority as a priest. The priestly role is associated with, well, the tabernacle first, but then the temple. And so when these Jews asked him by what authority he disrupts the temple, he cites the baptism of John. And the argument's pretty simple. Jesus is arguing that since John's baptism was from heaven, Jesus has been truly ordained as a priest. And therefore, he has the authority to do these things. He has the authority to teach in the temple and to disrupt the temple like he did. And so look at this again, picking up in verse 28. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And in verse 30, Jesus asks them a counter question. Is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now that may not be a tough question for you, but for them, it is a tough question. And so they call a meeting to discuss their answer options. Verse 31, answer option one. Okay, if we say the ministry of John is from heaven, then what are we admitting? Well, we're admitting that Jesus has the authority to teach and heal and operate in the temple. And we don't want to admit that. What else can we say? Answer option two, verse 32. Okay, well, if we say the ministry of John is from man, then what are we admitting? Well, then we're admitting that we're ignorant because everyone knows that John is authorized by God as a prophet. The whole nation knows that John was from God. And so, if the Sanhedrin denies this plain fact that all the people know, everyone will say, well, how can you not see it? You're the leaders. You're supposed to know these sorts of things. You're supposed to be the guys who proclaim this sort of thing. And you can't even see that John was a prophet of God. So, if they say John is from heaven, they're admitting that Jesus has authority, the very thing they don't want to admit. If they say John isn't from heaven, then they're admitting their ignorance before the people who all knew that John did have authority from God. And so, what do they do? They vote present. They refuse to answer the question, even though the answer is clear. And what is the clear answer? John's ministry was divinely authorized. 
And so if John's ministry has divine approval, then that means Jesus' ministry has divine approval. If you accept John's ministry, you must believe Jesus is the Christ. Now, some people read this passage and they think that Jesus is being evasive. So is Jesus being evasive here? They ask him a question and he responds with a question rather than an assertion. So is he being evasive? Well, the entire exchange, as we've just seen, the, the entire exchange invites two conclusions. First, that Jesus' authority, like John's authority, is from heaven. And second, that Jesus is not inferior to the prophet John. And if you believe John was a prophet, you must believe Jesus is the mightier one that John speaks of in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. And so those paying attention, those crowding in around them as they dispute, those listening in on this discussion, they all understand that Jesus is making an implicit claim to divine authorization. There's nothing evasive here. If anyone's being evasive, if anyone's trying to avoid the truth, it's the Sanhedrin and not Jesus. And so what we're seeing in this passage is the divine proclamation that Jesus Christ has the full approval and authority of God the Father. And that fact, that truth, has implications for us today. Jesus Christ operates with the full divine authorization from God the Father. And I want us to consider two implications of this fact. The first implication of Jesus' authority is that Jesus' authority is absolute. Jesus' authority is absolute. You know, some things never change. Doubting the authority of Jesus was the problem then, and doubting the authority of Jesus is the problem now. The temple leaders asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? People today ask Jesus, by what authority do you tell me what to believe and what to do? And why is that the default question for people today? Why is the default question to go to Jesus and ask, by what authority can you tell me what to believe and do? Well, the reason that's the default question today is because the forces of a commercialized and industrialized society have robbed people from an external form of meaning. In other words, all meaning has been relocated from outside of us to inside of us. So we can barely even fathom the thought that anything outside of me can have authority over me. And when authority is relocated to the inner person rather than to something outside of you, well then that eats away every transcendent reference point. And without a transcendent reference point, there is no overarching meaning. So what do people do when they are thwarted in their effort to find meaning outside themselves? Well, they, by default, relocate all authority internally and detach themselves from any fixed moral standard that exists outside of themselves. And this is exactly how modern people look, detached from God, such that the scraps of the self have to pretend to fill the vacated role of God. And that's why people's identities today are constantly changing and shifting, like a disordered piece of modern art that's a mere collage of random images. People today experience unwanted 
weariness and emptiness. They feel fragile. But why? Well, it's because they are adrift in the relentless convulsion of a weightless world. And why is the world weightless? Well, it's weightless because people go to Jesus and say, by what authority do you? It's weightless because there's very little room for God in our thinking. And so we relocate authority from an external source, such as God, the Bible, and the church, to an, an internal source, such as our feelings and our conscience. But that self, as a substitute authority for God, never works. Why not? Well, for the same reason making a kindergartner principal of the school doesn't work. The kindergartner doesn't have the resources or the wisdom or the strength or the knowledge or the competence to handle all the problems and all the situations of the school. And likewise, the self doesn't have the capacity to take over the function of God. The self, born in sin, is finite, merely a human composition. And as such, the self has no transcendent rudder. The self, in and of itself, has no divine compass and has no heavenly provisions. Therefore, the self, independent from God, has no capacity to overcome the world. Without Christ, the self is always overcome by the world. Now, from start to finish, the point of these seven verses is that Jesus' authority is from God. And thus, Jesus' authority is absolute. And to say that Jesus' authority is absolute is to say at least three things. It's to say, first, that we shouldn't doubt or question it. Just as Abraham did not waver in his belief that God would grant Sarah a child, so should we cling to his authoritative word and his authoritative promises. Second, to say that Jesus' authority is absolute is to say that his lordship transcends all other potential loyalties. We are right to be loyal to our parents and our nation and our friends, and yet loyalty to Christ must be without rival. And third, to say that Jesus' authority is absolute is to say that it covers all areas of human life. Everything we do either glorifies God or it doesn't. And Jesus has the right to order every aspect of human life. And this he does through his word. And so Jesus' authority is his right to tell people what to do. See, God's sovereignty is about his might, but God's authority is about his right. Jesus' authority means that he has the right to be obeyed. He has the right to tell us what standards govern our beliefs and behaviors. And so the first implication of Jesus' authority is that his authority is absolute. The second implication of Jesus' authority, following from the first, is that Jesus' authority, therefore, is higher than yours. Jesus' authority is higher than yours. Now, you have a love-hate relationship with authority, and it works out something like this. When you are in authority, you love it. 
and you demand that it be respected. And it's hard to understand why people wouldn't respect authority. But when you do not have authority, you resent it. See, people don't like authority over them. They don't like authority higher than them. And that's fundamentally why the Sanhedrin hates Jesus. He's a challenge to their authority. They're blinded by their obsession with power, and they don't like an authority higher than them. And this passage reminds us that not only is Jesus' authority higher than the Sanhedrin, but his authority is higher than yours. Jesus Christ walked this earth with full, unhindered authority. No other human being in the history of the world can accurately claim to have done that. Not Alexander the Great, not Genghis Khan, not Julius Caesar, not Napoleon, and not George Patton in North Africa. What is Jesus' authority? Well, the Greek word that's used here is excusia, and it means to have the right to control or govern. The right to control or govern. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about rights. Debates rage about whether or not we have a right to health care, or whether or not we have a right to a certain standard of living, whether or not we have a right to uh, someone else paying for our education. But have you noticed in all of this discussion, no one's talking about the rights of God? What about the rights of God? As Christians, we should faithfully talk about rights. And that starts first with, of course, separating man-made rights, also known as positive rights, from natural rights. But even then, once we put man-made rights on the side and recognize that they're not legitimate and just hold up natural rights as the proper way of discussing rights for man, even then we have to acknowledge that all discussion of rights, all discussion of natural rights, doesn't begin with, well, what rights do I have? No, it begins with God and His rights. What are the rights of God? If we're to faithfully talk about rights, we have to start with the rights of God. Once we establish that, then we can talk about natural rights made in the image of God. We are endowed with certain rights. Then we can have that discussion. But first, we must talk about the rights of God. So what are the rights of God? Well, the right of God is that he has supreme authority. He has the right to rule and govern all things. But God doesn't need the Supreme Court to grant him permission to exercise his authority. This he does every second of every day. Jesus Christ healed the sick. Jesus Christ cast out demons. And Jesus Christ raised the dead. And all these things he did on the full authority of God the Father. The God who always has been and always will be. The God who created earth and everything on the earth. But also, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came as the Messiah, the one who saves. And Jesus saves mankind from sin by taking the guilt of their sin on himself and paying the penalty of that sin through his death. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Again, exercising his authority, Jesus proved victorious over death. Jesus proved victorious over the sin of his people when he was raised from the dead and left for the world in empty tomb. This is the Jesus Christ who's operating in the temple. This is the Jesus Christ who's having this exchange with the Sanhedrin. And this Christ 
is the reason we're called Christian. He is the reason that we pray and worship. He is the reason that we read the Bible, which is the Word of God. He is the reason that we live in fellowship with other believers. He is the reason that we raise our families to trust and obey. And He is the reason we do all the things we do in faith. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, give us the help of your grace that in keeping your commandments we may please you through our Lord Jesus Christ and we recognize the full and supreme authority of Jesus Christ and admit that our complete joy is found only when we submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed K I R K dot com.